Thank you so much. Thank you all. It's uh, a pleasure to be here in such a beautiful facility, and and obviously it's nice to uh, to be included when your book comes out and in any kind of author-related talk. Um, I developed the little synopsis of the book and, and some of the highlight points. Um, and if it's all right with you guys, I'd like to just run through that, uh, hopefully uh, fairly quickly, so that we can move on to uh, some questions. Um, so again, thank you to the National Portrait Gallery and Nicole and the staff. My uh, uh, thanks also to North Carolina Press and their assistance. And again, thanks uh, to you all uh, for being here. Um, so my book looks at the idea of um, the civil rights movement uh, from a comparative perspective. Um, and it's, it's one that I think um, is, is badly needed and, and uh, uh, really sorely needed, something that hasn't been done. Um, and it really deals with the subject matter that I think, while historic in nature, is going to be one that continues to have uh, a relevance and an importance today, and that subject matter, uh, specifically the idea of black-brown relations. Um, there seem to be these moments periodically where um, there's a, a flare-up or strife between Latinos and blacks that uh, seems to boggle the mind of of scholars and pundits and folks in the blogosphere, they, they don't know what's going on. Um, and I think really the reason why that's the case is because the, the, the work simply hasn't been done. Um, so I can give you a couple of examples of this one. Um, President Obama just a few months back um, delivered a speech in El Paso about immigration reform. And it was really the first time that he had spoken to the Latino community um, since becoming president, and he had basically rejected every opportunity to speak to Latino civic organizations, and they were quite surprised when the first thing that he chose to focus on is the immigration reform issue, and, and, it, and it created this, this flare-up and a momentary tension between uh, black and brown. Um, we had a really ugly incident in Texas where um, a group of approximately 20 black men, possibly more, allegedly raped an 11-year-old Mexican-American girl, um, and the accusations flying back and forth from both sides were really just kind of the most, if you think about it, the most disgusting examples of, of racism going back to the 19th to early 20th century. Things like, you know, black men are inherently prone to want to rape women. Uh, Mexican-American young girls is sort of the idea of the, the hot Latina. Mexican-American girls are predisposed to having sex at an earlier age, and so it was really her fault, it was their fault ignoring the crime and, and the child in this case and really focusing in on these stereotypes. And just a couple of days ago, we had this incident of Cat Williams, comedian. Um, he got heckled in, I don't know if you guys are familiar with it, he got heckled in Phoenix, Arizona. And, I mean, he just went off on this, this is what I can only describe as an anti-Mexican rant that really showed, I think, some of the problems, you know, with this idea of, of black-brown relations and, and, and how these two communities look at each other, see each other, and, and, and work together. I think the problem is, and again, why I hope my research and, and writing is important, is that for the, for the general public, and I need for a lot of scholars, um, there's a presumption that ethnic communities, that minorities would automatically come together to solve problems, that there'd be sort of unity amongst the oppressed, uh, of, amongst the oppressed, and that um, isn't often the case. And when we have these flare-ups, this tension, this strife, it strikes people as really shocking because they don't quite understand it. And again, my hope is, and my goal with this book is to show the problem of that thinking and, and, to, and to describe some of the historic tensions that developed um, specifically in Texas uh, and, 
uh, in the uh, in the civil rights movement. Um, so we have in the civil rights movement in Texas um, two distinct separate civil rights struggles occurring simultaneously. And this is the reason why um, I think Texas is, is really, really important. It's the only state in the South, the only Southern state with a large Mexican-American population. By the same token, it's the only quote-unquote Southwestern state uh, with a significant uh, African-American population. So it's really the only state in the United States where we have these two parallel struggles happening um, almost uh, simultaneously. You can look at other states in the Union. Um, California probably is the closest example, and you have to add Asian Americans and Native Americans to the mix. So this is the one where you have two side-by-side um, struggles happening at the same time. Um, and by looking at the two struggles side-by-side, uh, what I attempt to do is really broaden, answer some of the questions that I've been alluding to, but also broaden the parameters of, of civil rights scholarship and, and really include a state that hasn't really been examined before. Um, so my book is an exercise in comparative civil rights history, which again is a, a sort of a brand new field. And my goal is to take a state, um, look at these two movements, put them side by side, look at their ins and outs, their leaders, their ideas, their tactics, their their goals and, and look at all of this within a comparative framework. And my argument is that comparative history, while it's generally looked at things like nation building and empire and, and, and those sorts of things, it really can have a, a major impact on how we understand the civil rights movement and also um, race relations in the United States. Um, part of what I do is, is you know, I identify the, the, the major players, the principal um, activities, the, the goals, the the, the actual protests, um, the lawsuits, all these different different things, but then put them into that comparative framework to show both how those lawsuits, goals, tactics, strategies are both um, similar and uh, uh, dissimilar. Um, more importantly, um, by putting these two communities in a comparative framework, um, I'm able to engage in a really sustained discussion um, regarding the divisive power of race the racial, racial transformations that the civil rights movements um, uh, ultimately wrought, um, and um, you know the the, the ultimate um, benefits and detractions, if you will, the positives and the negatives of of both of those uh, uh, outcomes. Um, I argue that by exploring the shifting and contesting boundaries of race, my book shows not only how blacks and Mexican Americans challenge the racial caste system in Texas but also how those challenges bifurcated the two, two communities, frustrated attempts at, at, at coalition building, and ultimately strained uh, relations um, between the two. Um, so as I indicated, Texas is a unique case study for this. It's the only southwestern state with a large black population, only southern state with a large Mexican-American population. It's one of the only states with a dual Jim Crow system. Um, so Jim Crow in Texas is not just black and white, uh, as we have in other parts of the country, but there's actually a, a, a tri-racial system of segregation. Um, race and Jim Crow as an idea, segregation as an idea, is still largely conceived as a, as a black-white binary, but Mexican-Americans in a lot of ways experience their own segregation. Um, you know, the, the things that I think we're probably all familiar with, stores and restaurants and voting disfranchisement, um, you know, movie theaters, uh, public transportation, public facilities, 
um, all those different signs, the ubiquitous, you know, uh, white and colored water fountains. Uh, except in Texas, you have specific references to, you know, no Latin Americans or no Spanish Americans. This park is for whites only, no Negroes, no color, no Spanish Americans. Um, there's probably the best example of that type of segregation signage is a courthouse that has the, the sign over the restroom that says hombres aquí, literally men here, to denote this is where Mexican-American men should go and white men can go to the, to the, you know, the nicer um, facility. Um, one of the things that I try to point out is that I think many scholars make the mistake of attempting to compare the, the, the Jim Crow systems and indeed compare the suffering, if you will, of the two communities under those, under those systems. And in a lot of cases, the black community comes out you know, worse for the wear. And one of the things that I, I caution in the book is that the Mexican-American version of Jim Crow, um, while it may seem less oppressive because it's not as well codified in the law, it actually ends up being a little harder to defeat for that reason. Um, so the black civil rights movement has a law that they don't like. You have to attend segregated schools. They can take, you know, go to court to challenge that law, um, take the school district to court. Mexican-Americans don't oftentimes have that same leverage that's, you know, based on lo local customers, the difference between de jure and de facto segregation. And in many cases, it's very hard to take something to court or take a law to court if no law actually exists. So in some ways, the, the struggle for them is a, uh, is a, is a little more uh, difficult. I want to lay out a couple of the um, main causes of what, what we scholars generally refer to as black-brown disunity, um, talk a little bit about areas where the two communities did come together, and then leave with some final thoughts and, and let you guys uh, uh, ask some questions. And if I'm going over on time or if I'm talking too much, just... I don't even know when we started, but just, Nicole, you can flag me or, or whatever. Um, so one of the first things that actually contributes to this, this poor relationship uh, between the two communities is actually that Jim Crow system. The, the emergence of this dual Jim Crow system actually contributes to the development of two separate movements. In many places, segregated um, spaces were for black, white, and Mexican, and, and in that regard, um, segregation not only separated blacks and Mexicans from whites, but also from each other. So we have separated neighborhoods, segregated communities. Um, really, schools, I think, is the best example. Um, take, for instance, the San Antonio Independent School District, which operated a triracial system of segregation. West side of town, predominantly Mexican, Mexican-American side of town, that's where the Mexican schools were. East side of town, this is the historic black community. That's where the segregated black schools were. And then primarily in the north, this is where Anglo or white Americans lived. Uh, that's where you'd have uh, uh, white schools. So when protesting segregation, um, these communities are separated by the geography of the cities in many cases. Uh, and, and if you think about it, it's sort of difficult in some cases for folks to kind of quote unquote cross the tracks, if you will, to join the protests of others when your community is what you see and what you know and, and, and I would say really what you're, what you're concerned about. And indeed, I think that neighborhood segregation combined with school segregation really actually creates a powerful impetus for these groups not to, not to work together. It signals, you know, you, you do your thing and, and we'll do our thing. The broader racial geography of the state works almost in exactly the same way. So the vast majority of blacks live in the east uh, part of the state in East Texas, the so-called Black Belt of the state, while the majority of uh, Mexican Americans live in the southern and western part of the state. And so they're 
Um, they're separated by, by many miles of, of open space and indeed by that perception that Jim Crow mandates in some ways uh, this separation. So if we take, for example, the sit-in movement gets going in 1960, uh, the small town of uh, of Marshall, Texas, is is one of the uh, the East Texas towns that that sees uh, initial sit-in protests. It's got a Mexican American population of about 200 people, so out of about 24,000 people, it's got about one percent Mexican American population. There just simply aren't that many people there. It's it, you know we can certainly raise the question of would they participate had they been included, but the black community just sort of disregarded them and 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 didn't include them, so they didn't they didn't participate. Um, at about that same time in um, Crystal City, which is down in, in South Texas, um, we have uh, Mexican Americans engineering this this really massive voting and, and, and poll tax drive to basically try to unseat. Uh, this Anglo-controlled city council, these, the same group of, of white men had basically been in control of the government for about three decades. So they're like, you know, we have a majority Mexican population in the town, why, why shouldn't we have some of our people on the city council? Well, Crystal City has a population of about 10%, uh, excuse me, about 10,000, uh, 2% are black, so again, about 200 people there. And those folks simply aren't called upon for assistance when these, when these folks are organizing their uh, their voting campaign. Uh, I might add that the f uh, the city council is actually swept out, and five Mexican Americans are elected to, to office. Um, the 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 African Americans in Crystal City actually voted for the Anglo incumbent. So it's 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 so bad that it's so bad that you're not called upon to to, to participate. But by the same token, uh, they actually vote for uh, uh, for the other side. So this is a. Uh, this is a big one. Again, I think it shows you that concentration of people, the geography of the state. It simply makes sense if you think about it. If you have a very small black population, there's not going to be that many people participating in your demonstrations. It's, it's, uh, it, it's sort of uh, easy to understand, I think. Um, one of the other things that, that, that tends to differentiate the two communities is, is uh, leadership. Um, I think as many of us know, the African-American community's uh, leadership in the civil rights movement came primarily from um, the ministry. And in Texas, that meant in particular Baptist uh, and uh, Methodist ministers. Uh, those ministers um, both led protests and encouraged their congregation to protest. And indeed, the, the black civil rights struggles, as, as David Chappelle and others have talked about, um, really did have a... Um, you know, ordained by God or biblically mandated um, um, ideology behind them. Um, black ministers led primarily black churches, so that, that was their constituency. Uh, on the other side, Mexican Americans did not receive inspiration from their church leaders in, in the same way. The Catholic Church, most Mexican origin people came from the Catholic faith. The Catholic Church was not responsive really to the civil rights movement and indeed uh, a lot of the, the Catholic leaders in Texas and the Southwest didn't like uh, the idea of civil rights. Um, they felt uh, civil rights was a secular concern, not a religious concern, and they you know, didn't get involved until the, the mid-1960s. And, and it's only at that time in 63, 64, 65 where you see a group of, of activist Chicano priests uh, coming out of seminary as well as a number of sympathetic um, um, white priests who are, you know, emboldened by the idea of the civil rights movement look at direct action demonstrations as the way to 
you know, to, to help Mexican-American people. But again, these are folks that primarily preside over all Mexican or all Latino congregations, and so reaching out to the black community is a little bit more difficult. They, they tend to focus on the people that they know and see and, 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 and feel the, uh, you know, need the most help. So th there isn't the, the unification there um, that, that, that we might uh, expect. We also have leaders coming from the business community, and this gets us to, to one of the, the more acrimonious or, or, or example of animosity between the two uh, communities. Um, in particular, when we have African Americans attempting to desegregate businesses, and those businesses are run by Mexican Americans. So there's a, a number of examples where we have tension where basically Mexican American business owners um, don't want to negotiate with the African-American community. Other businesses, city leaders in places like Houston, Dallas, San Antonio, Galveston, El Paso, fill in the blank, they're willing to negotiate, but these Mexican-American leaders are, are, are really unwilling to do that in many cases. There's a really great example of this in the form of a gentleman by the name of Felix Tijarina, who's the president of the League of United Latin American Citizens, LULAC, sort of the premier Mexican-American civil rights group uh, in Texas and the Southwest. He's also a very well-known restaurateur and he firmly resists the sit-in movement and, and, and basically comes out swinging against it, going so far as to say that um, white business leaders should uh, find some way to boycott black employees as a way to forestall the, the sit-in movement. So we're employers, we won't hire you if you keep protesting and and engage in, a, in an almost a reverse boycott or an anti uh, uh, sit-in uh, boycott. It's really uh, uh, quite an interesting uh, uh, story. Uh, I think also where we talk about leadership, the idea of power sharing is, is a really big one that, that, that I think we have to understand. These are communities that throughout the civil rights period in the 50s and 60s and 70s are, are getting a hold for the very first time, a very tenuous hold on power, and sometimes working together means having to share power, and so they're reluctant to either give up what they've earned or simply don't want to want to share power. And so we have this, this power-sharing dynamic where leaders simply don't want to come together. I'm going to have some quotes just to give you an example of this. There was a really well-known um, activist named Harry Burns in San Antonio that said that blacks simply didn't want to join forces with Mexican-Americans because it would, quote, cause some of the benefits to be split. They would be competing with us. Um, on the Mexican-American side, there's a state representative, Lara Cruz, commented on this from the, from the Mexican-American perspective. He says, that's what I think is at the bottom of the black-brown divide, is the fact that the overall community, the total community, usually is only willing to give up so much of the, uh, the piece of the pie. So this idea that we, we have so little, we don't want to share it, so we're not going to work together, where potentially there's the, the hope that you actually could work together. Uh, I think last, as far as leadership is concerned, is um, the, the idea that we have really parallel institutions that, that, quite frankly, do quite well on their own. So we have LULAC that I mentioned before. Probably the premier civil rights group in Texas is the NAACP. These are organizations that mirror one another. They have the same basic goals and tactics. They have the same basic membership numbers, same basic strategies, working through the government and the courts, later turning to protests. They do quite well on, on their own. They don't necessarily need to, to, to join forces. And we see this parallel um, organizational situation uh, uh, throughout the period with a lot of, uh, of other different groups. I might add that in many cases, black civil rights organizations were unwilling to work with other 
competitive black civil rights organizations and Mexican-American civil rights organizations were unwilling to work with their competitors. And so if we can't have blacks and blacks and browns and browns working together, I don't know how we're ever getting any kind of cross-racial alliances and, and uh, folks, uh, uh, folks working together uh, in, in that regard. Um, really the big thing, I'm going to jump up just a little bit here because I don't think we need to do uh, all of this stuff. Um, really the big thing that I concentrate on in the book and the most significant barrier to cooperation were the, the racial sentiments uh, and indeed the animosities um, between these, these two groups. My principal argument is that all these things taken together, we've talked about so far, geographic distance and all the leadership stuff and ideas of cultural dissimilarity and, and so on and so forth. These, these are major obstacles to get over, but when you add this racial dynamic, it's, uh, you know, it almost makes uh, the idea of working together uh, impossible. And, and what I say in the book is that it's the most substantial uh, obstacle to, uh, to, to unification. Race and racism ultimately cause the most problems in deal coalition building um, its, uh, its most devastating blow. There are a number of examples I can, I can uh, uh, point to, but one of the most important and one of the things that I concentrate quite heavily in the first part of the book is the idea of, um, of Mexican-American whiteness, the idea of Mexican-Americans racially positioning themselves as white people. And again, part of this makes sense if you think about the racial binary and the fact that Jim Crow, at least in most parts of the country, is supposed to be blacks and whites. Does it make sense to really fight to become segregated on the black side, or does it make more sense to say, well, we're white and there's a measure of safety on the white side of Jim Crow, and, and, uh, and, and, and we'd like to, uh, to have that. Thank you very much. Um, I call this idea the whiteness strategy, um, and I call it that um, for a couple of different reasons, which I'll uh, get to in, in, in just a second. But I want to give you uh, uh, one example, and again, there are innumerable examples. I probably, in my research, I probably put into the book only about half of the examples that I actually found, because once you have as much as I have in there, it becomes somewhat akin to beating a dead horse. But, um, but the desegregation of schools this is a really big one. For a number of years, um, Mexican-Americans challenged school segregation by insisting that their children were classified by the state and by the federal government as white, and therefore this idea of Mexican schools was completely and totally uh, illegal. And this works in a number of instances. I talk about, just to give you this one example, the 1948 Delgado v. Bastrop ISD um, um, desegregation case, uh, and the lawyers in that case made it very clear that they were char uh, they were trying the case on very limited grounds to try to desegregate it for Mexican American children only, because those children were white. One of the attorneys said quite succinctly that Mexican Americans should quote be admitted to the white schools, on the ground that Mexican Americans are Caucasian. And ultimately, the state, um, uh, the, the court, the, the district court in the state, ultimately agrees with this um, line of thinking and says, you know, if we have this segregation law, which basically says Negro white segregation doesn't say anything about Mexican-Americans, then there's no reason why these folks should be segregated. And clearly, they're, if they're white, they're not black, so they should go to the, uh, the, the white schools. I, I want to make sure that we understand that this idea of whiteness and, and white racial formation is a really complex phenomenon. It's one that a lot of different people utilized. It's one that that stretches across class um, uh, lines. Um, some Mexican-Americans who fought for whiteness were themselves phenotypically white, so it made sense that they would fight for white rights because they, they have white skin. Um, others uh, who come from more of a mixed race or a mestizo stock 
Um, they looked at whiteness as much more of a, uh, call it a social strategy as opposed to a racial strategy. They, they wanted to use whiteness, as I indicate, strategically to fight for rights, but probably didn't think of themselves realistically as Caucasian. Um, a lot of um, Americans in general and a lot of Mexican-Americans equated first-class citizenship with, with white people. And so for a lot of Mexican-Americans, the first step to equality was, was actually citizenship and especially first-class citizenship. And so we can look at it as more of a citizenship strategy than a, than a racial strategy. And, and finally, a lot of Amer- Mexican-Americans used it politically, used whiteness politically to appeal to uh, Anglo-American politicians and allies, and, and thus it's less a racial strategy and more of a, of a, uh, a, a political uh, strategy. I might also note that contrary to some of the other scholarship that's out there, simply because someone advocated for whiteness didn't necessarily mean that they would automatically be opposed to the black civil rights movement. I mentioned Felix Thierry and some of the uh, folks that are similar like him. I mean, they have, an out, they have an outright dislike of the black civil rights movement. There's no, you know, there's no real bones about that. But, but others do not. You can position yourself as white and still be in favor of, of the black civil rights movement. Um, and again, I might add that the only alternative uh, was, was fighting for black rights, at least up until the mid-1960s. And for a lot of Mexican-Americans, that seemed potentially a step in the, in the wrong direction. It creates problems, of course, because of how African Americans um, perceive whiteness. And, and this is where we get to um, the fact that, that this idea of whiteness ultimately damages relations with, with black people. A lot of black people, as you might expect, took offense. They saw it as proof that Mexican Americans, like racist Anglos, disliked black people and disliked the, uh, uh, the civil rights movement. As I've mentioned with Tiarina and others, some folks actually practice, some Mexican Americans actually practice anti-black racism. So there's an element of racism that goes along with this that, that uh, keeps blacks you know, uh, at bay. Um, by the same token, a lot of African Americans uh, simply saw this idea of whiteness, perhaps thought of it as a you know, something foisted upon the community by, by Anglos or the, or the white elite, but chose to disregard or ignore the Mexican-American movement because of this focus on, on white racialization. And if you think about it, that disregard or ignoring is just about as bad for coalition building as, say, the, the, the outright uh, uh, racism. And then, of course, there were a number of African-Americans who simply... Um, you know, preferred to work with those Mexican-Americans who were sympathetic and for others um, um, disregarded, uh, uh, you know, disregarded the Mexican-Americans that engaged in the more overtly racist forms of, of white racial positioning. Um, I might add that African-Americans oftentimes air their own racist sentiments about Mexican-Americans at this time. In addition to that, that disregard or neglect or indeed lack of knowledge of the Mexican-American civil rights struggle, there is oftentimes a, a sentiment coming from the black community that these are people who are not supposed to be here, they're all illegal, um, you know, they're taking jobs from the native-born, so there's common stereotypes, I think, that we're, that we're somewhat uh, uh, familiar with. Um, and, you know, that, th- those aren't very nice sentiments, and they certainly don't win 
um, uh, many Mexican-American friends. One of the things that I talk about towards the end of the book um, that, that gets into another racial dynamic, and I'm not going to go into a lot of detail at this point, was when we get to the black power and the brown power era, we have the development of this much more militant Chicano movement. Um, and Chicanos basically racially reposition themselves as brown. They don't like this idea of whiteness. They feel it connotes membership in the kind of quote-unquote gringo community, and that's not what they're down with. Um, and uh, and uh, they literally position themselves as brown, not white. And this is actually one of the, the, the clarion calls of the, of the Chicano movement. It's a really important idea because what it does is it gives them the ability to, to utilize the Equal Protection Clause of the 14th Amendment with a whole lot more ease than they ever had before, but it also gives them the opportunity to more forcefully align with African Americans because that sort of whiteness as a barrier is, is no longer there. Unfortunately, a lot of black people look very skeptically on this idea of brownness. They're not sure it's a sincere ta- tactic. A lot of them see it as, as disingenuous. Um, they wonder why, after so many years for fighting for white rights, would Mexican Americans change tactics? They look at the success that the black freedom struggle has enjoyed, and they realize with that success, especially with the Civil Rights Act of 1964, the protection of Jim Crow, because Jim Crow's basically been legally eradicated, uh, is gone. So the benefits of whiteness are gone. Um, and black people wonder. Is it really a reaction to the fact that whiteness is no longer a good tactic and blacks have done so well, you know, focusing on, on, on their own community that maybe we can, we can do similar things? So to put it in a different way, they see it as, as, if not disingenuous, actually a reactionary tactic to the successes of the, of the black movement. And indeed, a lot of African Americans wonder if this isn't going to allow Mexican Americans to kind of ride the coattails, if you will, of, of the African-American community, especially uh, in the, uh, the war on poverty. And a great quote from this NAACP activist in Fort Worth, L. Clifford Davis, he says, think about it. All prior to 1964 and 1965, in that time frame, they were proclaiming themselves and trying to get the benefit of being white. But after, only after, the Civil Rights Act, when it became important, people were looking at color, that they start talking about me minority, me minority, me minority too. Um, in his quote, you see a little bit, there's some racism within the quote as well to say me minority is a, a not a nice way to look at it. But, but his ultimate point, I think, is, is well taken, that, that it's really a change in tactics that, that, uh, uh, that forces uh, folks to, to, to change their uh, racial uh, positioning. I mentioned at the beginning that there are examples of, of uh, cooperation and coalition building. I don't want you all to think that it's, that it's all a picture of, of discord and, and disunity and negativity and acrimony. There are a lot of examples where the two communities do come together uh, and work for a common purpose. Those examples tend to be short-lived, but I think looking at them and perhaps explaining why they're short-lived is just about as important as explaining some of the other um, or more overt, if you will, examples of, of, of outright racism. So just to give you one example, um, I can actually give you a bunch of examples, but I'll give you one from the black and brown power movement. Um, uh, when the Houston police in 1970 uh, actually killed this unarmed black man and it resulted in um, the creation of what um, the Houston community called the Rainbow Coalition. It's not really affiliated with that Rainbow Coalition, but they called it that because they had all different people, different colors under the sun as part of the, the, uh, the organization. Uh, Mexican-Americans were really interested, Chicanos were really interested in, in joining this organization because they too 
had often felt the sting of police brutality and harassment. It's actually the subject of my next book, a little early plug there. Eight years from now, maybe we can re, re, rejoin here. Um, but as one Chicano put it, as, as, as they got into the organization, they realized very quickly, as, as he said it, that it was a quote-unquote black-focused group. And this, they found, again, was really unappealing. Perhaps gives you a sense, again, of that power sharing. It wasn't there. And so the Chicano community leaves the organization and ultimately devolves from the Rainbow Coalition um, to, the, to the Black Coalition, which I think is a really telling example. And we just have a ton of different examples. I don't have time to go into to all of them as far as cooperation and, and unity. But as I said before, those, those examples tend to be sporadic. They tend to be short-lived. Um, a variety of the different things that I've talked about ultimately cause those organizations to, to fall apart. But there are those uh, attempts to, uh, that are uh, uh, ultimately made. And again, I, I end the book uh, in the same way that I began this talk with much more of the contemporary period, um, bringing things up to the current period. Um, there are a lot of examples of that of that black-brown strife, as I indicated before, but also a lot of examples of, of the two communities coming together and working for uh, a common purpose. And I think it remains in some ways to be seen, to be seen what the actual future is going to look like, I think we're still going to have tension for a while. This is a tension oftentimes now, actually, that's coming more from the black side than it is from the Mexican-American side because the numbers continue to grow and, and, and blacks feel worried about the numbers and feel displaced by, um, by Latinos. Um, but it remains to be seen whether, as we go on, whether these groups will actually continue um, to fight their own battles. And I'll leave it at that and be happy to entertain any questions that you might have. I'm not going to lead off with the question that I asked. Okay, go for That's fine. First one's easy. Can you okay. give us the demographics percentage-wise, black, um, Mexican-American, and Caucasian in Texas? Yeah. This is actually um, a lot more difficult of a question than you might think. Um, because of this whiteness strategy. So one of the things that Mexican-Americans did was when it was time for the decennial census, every year it seems like from about 1910 to the 1970s, the census would try to find some category, Mexican, Latino, Latin American, Latin, in order to tabulate the Mexican population. And every time the community reacted very viscerally to that and said, we can't have that because if you categorize this differently than white, that potentially erodes our position in the state. So there can't be any Latin, Mexican. Oftentimes the census was trying to put Latin or Mexican under race, and they'd say there's no such thing as a Latin or a Mexican race. It's either white or black or Indian or what have you. Um, the idea of kind of ethnic categories hadn't been invented. So we know a rough estimate of the, of the numbers um, based on the fact that people who have a lot more time than I do have actually gone back and counted the Spanish surname people counted in the census, and what they've come up with is a relatively um, equal breakdown between blacks and uh, Mexican-Americans in the state of Texas from roughly the 1950s um, to, the, uh, uh, to the 1970s. Those are the principal years in, in the book. So in those years, um, the Mexican-American community rose faster, about 10% of the population in the 1940s, 1950s, rising up to 15, 20% by the 1970s. Blacks at about 14, 15% and rising up to the, the 20 percentile um, by, the, uh, by the 1970s. That equates, if I remember, I actually have it in here, I can check. It's about 15 million people uh, for each community through the main years of the, of the Civil Rights Movement. But let me 
don't want to give you any inaccurate information. Yeah, starts at each one um, starts at about a million people, uh, and actually by the um, uh, by the 1970s is at about a million and a half, so a little bit less than uh, than I thought. Yeah. I'm gonna let somebody else ask the other question. Second part I wanted to ask you was, it may just be my sense, but we've traveled and spent some time in Houston, and I found the community incredibly segregated. Yeah. I mean, uh, communities you go from Mexican to white to uh, black and Asian and everything separate. Sure. And do you see progress in the future? Do you see integration, or do you think Texas is just going to remain this way? I, so I'm an optimist at heart, but based on what I I study, I think my answer is probably going to sound fairly pessimistic. Um, what we see in a place like Houston and Dallas, uh, San Antonio. Um, Austin, uh, New Orleans, um, what we see are uh, communities of color that are still dealing with real major structural inequalities, structural poverty that's been around for generations and really hasn't ever uh, been dealt with. The Civil Rights Movement tried in a lot of ways to deal with those issues, um, but I think in some ways um, you know, we to 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 borrow a phrase, we got the hamburger, but but uh, we didn't get the job behind the counter or, or as a manager or what have you. So we got integration um, and and greater equality. You go to a restaurant now and sit down next to everybody, but education, neighborhoods, jobs, there's still a lot of disparities. And the way you see that play out on the ground level is in the segregation of the communities that, that you're talking about. Now, mind you, there are lots of parts of Houston that are, uh, are, are really well integrated. I mean, actually, most of the neighborhoods that I've lived in when I lived in Houston were, were integrated almost along equitable lines. The high school that I went to was 30% white, 30% black, 30% Asian, uh, 30% um, um, uh, Latino with about 10% Asian. So there are those, those places. But when you travel, let's say, to the third or fourth ward, uh, when you go to Montgomery Park, you're going to see black, black, Mexican communities. And it, if you go to Chinatown, you're going to see all Asian communities. It's and that I, I don't, it doesn't seem likely to change. No. Sir, please. Um, I, I find, I must say, I, I must congratulate you on your talk. I think this is a very important issue that needs to be looked at, those, those tensions. And especially now with the, uh, you know, with the changing demographics in America, the notion that sure. the party is America is going to become a majority minority country. That's right. And therefore, somehow the minorities are going to take over, push out the whites, and, you know, without thinking that there are all type of tensions. I mean, you, you talk about the whitening. I'm from the Caribbean. Mm. Uh, one is, is a group very, very of, of Caribbean descent, very, the Cuban Americans, right? Sure. You do a, a census, 99% of Cubans come back white. And they have done, re they go like just a minute here, they go walk it. But you cannot be in any way just using the one drop, you know. But be that as me, some problems I think with your, uh, with your talk. Eh? Um, because I spent, before, before I came here, I lived a long time in uh, LA, I went to USC. Mm -hmm. um, it seems to me that you downplay a little bit um, <laughs> the interest of the dominant community to create tensions between these two mm. communities, okay? To, to have these communities rub up against one another. Uh, 
I mean, you're going to write about policing in LA. You pick up a, a, a brown, uh, a Latino gangbanger, and you're dropping, you drop him in the middle of uh, a black community. Well, he's killed. Well, hell, all hell breaks loose between Latinos and, and blacks, right? Sure. The, the leaders getting together. I think also um, um, another issue that needs to be looked at is the fact that uh, most of the Latino community is an immigrant community. Same thing in my Caribbean community. That's why there's sometimes tensions with African Americans, right? Although many of us reject those tensions, right? So this is this is some it's complete garbage. I mean, we are all part of the you know, larger black community, um, and minorities coming in, obviously, even you know, there's more and more also black Latinos coming in. I mean, you, you didn't even talk about the fact that there's also a black Latino, developing black Latino type of identity, mm -hmm. right? Which does that necessarily mean that these black Latinos automatically are going to, to solidarize themselves with African Americans? Maybe, maybe not. Yeah. Yeah? You know, you come in, you want to be, create your own American dream, et cetera, et cetera. So uh, I think those issues are important. Maybe you want to talk about some other things. So obviously, Rick Perry is running now for thing. Under his administration, what did he do to do about this? Did he uh, create greater tensions? Did he work about things? Did he put people in positions of power? You know. These are some issues maybe you want sure. to talk about. Sure, sure, sure. Um, I, I mean, I think you'll find in the book, uh, to, to get to the first part, uh, your first critique, I think you'll find in the book some of the um, of, of what you're looking for. Um, I do have a, a couple of sections where I talk about the fact that um, a lot of the stuff that these, that these two communities are, are, are fighting about is the result of of, uh, of of the of the white elite and, and how they play them uh, against each other? In fact, I think probably the most powerful section of the book, in my opinion at least, is is in the very end um, where I, I interviewed this guy Mario Salas, who's a very well known activist in, in San Antonio, um, and and he talks about the fact that that um, the the tensions between the two communities is really one that you have to take back to the 19th century and, and, and demonstrate what he calls the burden of history and how the burden of history has been convoluted along racial and class and, and lines of language and community and, and, and all these different sort of things. He calls it a superstructure of antagonisms that, that divide the two communities. And I think that's a really interesting way to put it because it gets it beyond simply geography or race or those things that I mentioned. Um, so some of that stuff is there, but I think for me at least, the heart of the book was to tell the story of these communities themselves, what their battles were like, um, and to include um, the white community where it was an adversary or an ally, but otherwise to talk about the black civil rights movement, the Mexican-American civil rights struggle, and that, that, was, that was really more the focus. But again, I think if you look, you'll see you know, the way in which you have, let's say, uh, a really racist segregation as governor. The, the architect of massive resistance in Texas is a guy named Price Daniel, who's, uh, who's uh, you know, he's someone that counts himself the friend of the Mexican-American community and actively supports them, but segregates African-Americans. And there's that tit-for-tat, like, I'll do for you and not for you, that, that I think sets up some of those antagonisms that, that, that you found to be mentioned, uh, missing in, in, the, in the talk. Um, as far as black Latinos are concerned, the 99% of the book is on Texas and the Mexican-American population, and the, the black population in Mexico is, is, uh, is really, really small, and so the actual number of, of Afro-Mexicans coming in uh, is, is perhaps quite a bit smaller than, than you might think based on the, the, the Cuban or the Caribbean 
experience. There are simply fewer blacks. Um, the majority of people, again, are, are of, a, of a mixed race heritage, and, and, and that's more um, how they identify. I might add that, that in Mexico, um, while we have this idea of the Mexican nation being composed of what Jose Vasconcelos calls la raza cosmica, it's really a fiction. Uh, we, have, we have a binary in some ways in, in Mexico that's not altogether different than the United States, and we have a racial order where Afro-Mexicans are on the bottom, Indians, mixed-race people, whites on the top, which, you know, those folks coming in are bringing that racial baggage. Same thing in Brazil. That's right. That's absolutely right, yeah. yeah. So, I'm, yeah. so I'm sorry. I don't want to cut you guys off. Yeah. We can continue this conversation, but it's getting to be the point where... Um, are we getting there? Thank Professor Ben King for coming and joining us here. The Thank you all. I want to invite